Welcome back to Tradman, everybody. Um, Jason, good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. Um, and uh, we've got a great episode lined up for us. We've got a great guest. Our guest today is Casey Chalk. Uh, he is the author of The Obscurity of Scripture and the book we're going to talk about tonight, The Persecuted, uh, The True Stories of Courageous Christians Living Their Faith in Muslim Lands. Uh, he is a contributor for Crisis Magazine, the American Conservative, and New Oxford Review. Uh, he has degrees in history and teaching from the University of Virginia and a master's degree in theology from Christendom College. Casey, thanks so much for taking some time tonight and being on the show. Sure, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. Before we begin tonight, I do want we, we do usually open with a prayer, and I found this prayer from an organization that both Jason and I are proud members of, the Knights of Columbus, and this is a prayer for persecuted Christians. We're going to talk about some heavy stuff tonight, um, but I do think that this is a topic that does need to be talked about more, and hopefully um, we will uh, be able to have an edifying discussion that uh, might spur us to, to action, be that spiritual action or maybe even more practical action. We will, we will, we will talk about all of that stuff. Uh, Bill, so please join us uh, in prayer if you're, if you're listening, uh, and um, we'll hope to have an edifying discussion. So in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. O God of all the nations, the one God who is and was and always will be, in your providence you willed that your church be united to the suffering of your Son, Look with mercy on your servants who are persecuted for their faith in you. Grant them perseverance and courage to be worthy imitators of Christ. Bring your wisdom upon leaders of nations to work for peace among all peoples. May your spirit open conversion for those who contradict your will, that we may live in peace and harmony. Give us the grace to be united in truth and freedom and to always seek your will in our lives. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our Lady protector of Christians, queen of peace, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Casey. I did. Well, I, I wanted to say something to Casey real quick. Yeah. I just wanted to give him a, you know, again, thanks for coming on the show, and thank you for the book. You know, I thought the book was was uh, was really good and eye-opening because um, reading about the plights of your and the hardships of your friends, uh, Michael and Wilson, it really puts – our lives here in the West and in the United States in perspective, because it makes a lot of the things that we complain about seem, seem minute. I'm not saying that we don't have legitimate gripes and complaints, but, you know, reading, reading about uh, Michael and Wilson and their families, uh, you know, hardships and journeys. It, like I said, it, it really does. I think bolster your faith and, and thankfulness to God for what we do have. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, and that certainly was one of my intentions with the book was to try and raise awareness regarding the plight of persecuted Christians across the world, certainly those in Muslim lands. And uh, but also, yeah, kind of put things in perspective for th for folks in the West, especially those who um, certainly are, are we're enduring an increasing amount of persecution for our Catholic faith or even Christian faith, even for non-Catholics. Um, but it really does pale in comparison to what a lot of these Christians are experiencing in places like Pakistan and Thailand. You know, the, the book is there are there are very there are heartbreaking, heart wrenching stories and terrifying stories in this book. But I don't want to give you the impression the book is is it, it has that effect on you. It, it, it certainly does in the in the interest of the storytelling aspect of it. But. There's a there's a great saying in uh, one of uh, Paul's letters where he talks about the the sick members of the body bring the body down, but the healthy members of the body shore the body up. And it is so inspiring to read stories about. I mean, nowadays all you hear about is cardinals who <laughs> are giving away the store, you know, for nothing, and you don't you never hear about the guys who are in the pew bearing the full brunt of everything the world and, and Satan can throw at you for your Catholic faith. And it was so inspiring to read these stories and it made, it just makes you feel like, yeah, this, this stuff that you're involved in emotionally is worth it. There are people who have given up a lot more than you. Uh, and to, they, and they find joy in it. 
and they yeah. find joy in it. Like St. Paul talks about, you know, when he's in prison, they, they still found the joy and happiness in being a Christian and fall and being a follower of Jesus Christ, which again, going back to what I said in the beginning, we seem to lose track of, we, we always focus on the negative and never find the joy. Did, did, how did you become somebody who was going to write a book about this? Because most of the time for most of us here in the West, the, the person, the persecuted Christian, the, per, the person that we think is the persecuted Christian in the world is us. Uh, <laughs> how did you become the guy who became passionate about this to write a book on this topic? So I think <clears throat> the plight of the persecuted church is something that has been close to my heart since I was young an adolescent. My father uh, an evangelical um, for a good part of his adult life. He was born Catholic. Um, he very much cared about the persecuted church, uh, and especially um, in, a, in the context of Muslim countries. So whenever we would hear sermons or, or talks about um, persecuted Christians at our local evangelical church, my dad was always very eager to you know buy the books, and offer the donations and all the rest of it. So it was something that I, I already had some familiarity with. And then when I was in Protestant seminary, I took a class from a very prominent former Muslim uh, who um, converted to Christianity and still teaches theology and runs a Protestant mission organization in the UK. His name is Patrick Sukdeo. So I took his class in Protestant seminary and was very inspired by his story and read a lot of his books. So I had a lot of familiarity with the plight of the global church, um, even when I was a Protestant. Um, but this became much more my own story when my wife and I moved to Thailand in 2014. That Now, for anybody who knows anything about Thailand, that probably will sound a little bit odd because Thailand is a majority Buddhist country. There are a couple of provinces in the southernmost part of the country that are majority Muslim, but mostly a, a Buddhist country. Um, but there are thousands of Christians that have fled Pakistan and all kinds of other countries, countries across the Middle East and South Asia. Um, they go to Bangkok, and they, the reason why they go to Thailand is because it's really easy to get a, a tourist visa there. I think even now, post-COVID, it's, it's pretty easy. You can basically fly into Swarnaboom Airport in, uh, in metropolitan Bangkok, and the Thai authorities will give you a 30-day visa, more or less asking no questions, right? So um, – Human traffickers know about this. A lot of persecuted Christians know about this. So they flee to Thailand, and their hope is that once they get there, they will be able to apply for refugee status with the United States um, uh, Commissioner on Human Rights and then await adjudication of that application. And once they are designated as a refugee, a process that can take a very long time, um, sometimes multiple years, and oftentimes does not result in a uh, positive adjudication, they're denied refugee status. But if they're one of the, the few blessed lucky ones, then once they're designated as refugees, they can be placed in a third country, somewhere like the United States, Canada, the UK, the Netherlands. There's actually only a handful of countries that take refugees. I was kind of surprised um, once moving there to learn that uh, it's, not, it's, it's not a long list, but um, they have the potential to be to be placed in one of those countries. But I should note, it's actually, uh, even, even if you are designated as a refugee, which only something like a few percentage points around the world of those who are like actually in the process of seeking asylum, have applied to the United Nations, um, only a few percentage points of those actually get the refugee status. And then of those, only about one or 2% actually get placed in the country on any given year. So that means that even if you're a refugee, you could end up sitting in a country for 5, 10, 15 years before you can start a new life in a new home. Yeah, yeah and, I, I, did when is, I did immigration right. law for like 10 minutes <laughs> and then like quick because I was like, this is a mess. Like it's an absolute mess. And there, there are people here in the United States who have been in the queue for, like you said, 15, 20 years that are still waiting on, ref on refugee status. This is just, you know, we're, we're not even to where you can apply for a social security card or anything like that. Well, I think maybe you can. I'm not sure what the rules are now. But, yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a mission. I'm sorry, Jason. I cut you. No, off. no, no, you're good. Um, yeah. And I was just going to say, as we see in the book here, that 
waiting for these these visas and and acceptance of your refugee status isn't always the best scenarios because it's hard for them to hold employment to provide for their families it's um you know they always under they're always under the fear that immigration is is going to come and deport them or arrest them and even even in some of those uh cases i believe it was uh i might be getting the names back but i believe it was michael that was it was him and his family that was in the Thai basically camps, detention camps for long periods of time, which uh, you had mentioned in the book, which were notoriously noted for being very bad places to be. Um, and I don't mean to put you on the spot here because you may not know, it just kind of popped in my head. Um, do you know what countries uh, typically are most accepting or most uh, friendly towards receiving um, Christian refugees? United States. <clears throat> okay. It definitely is number one on that list. Not that it's necessarily a particularly large number. I mean, we're talking in the thousands, maybe, maybe more than 10,000. The numbers went down quite a bit during COVID understandably um, since we were kind of under lockdown. Right. Um, but apart from the United States, Canada, the UK and the Netherlands come to mind. Wilson's family, so several members of his family. This is a Pakistani Catholic devout guy. And I'd love to get, get into talking about his story and the story of his family and how they ended up in Thailand. But um, what is it at this point? Four members of his family have been repatriated to the Netherlands and have been able to start a new life. And they've been there a few years. Um, and to their credit, they've learned Dutch and they're assimilating into that culture. And uh, he's still in Thailand because he's trying to get the rest of his family out. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it, it, like I said, it's a short list. And the things that these people that these people have had to endure, you know, I and I was talking about this with Jason, and I uh, because Jason travels frequently throughout the the Islamic world. Uh, he works in the oil and gas industry, and he didn't have any experiences quite comparable to what we were reading in the book, right, Jason? I was gonna yeah, because yeah, because the countries I spent most time in are like Oman and Saudi Arabia, and to be quite honest. Uh, Americans are actually, for the most part, left alone. As long as you are respectful of the customs and the culture there, mm -hmm. you, you're actually on a higher pedestal than, say, um, like the people that come in from India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, uh, Indonesia. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, I, I personally didn't experience, like, any, any type of persecution, um, but I was well aware of the culture and rules. So I was telling Mark beforehand, you know, I've had religious conversations in these, in these countries um, with, with co coworkers and guys that work for me and whatnot, but I was also very calculated in what I said. It wasn't I'd be scared to death. That'd well, be one <laughs> subject. I don't know that I could get like, well, it's well, mm. if I, if I had read Casey's book before all these trips, I might've been a little bit more, <laughs> yeah. um, a little bit more bashful because I would be worried about, like what you mentioned in the, in the book about these blasphemy laws where people were framed um, for basically making people mad. They didn't like what they were saying, but no, I mean, I would have these conversations. I never attacked the religion. It was more or less me just defending why I believed what I believed, you know, the best I could. But again, I, I, I am nowhere by no means can compare to anything. These, these people have gone through or seen. Well, I mean, so we, we hear over and over and over again that, it, that in fact we persecute Islam. That is, you know, that that uh, Islam is the most persecuted religion in the world, and it's the it's the Christians that persecute the Muslims and all this that and everything. Um, this book, not just this book, but Amnesty International and various other uh, NGOs, as well as uh, our State Department and various other entity, similar entities in other countries, verify that Christians are in fact the most persecuted religion in the world in your uh, research or in your opinion, is this a phenomenon that can be traced to some sort of recent development in the Islamic world? Is there some kind of recent theological trend that's given rise to things like this and let's say Islamic terrorism or things like that? Or is this just the, is this always been the case for, for Christians living in Islamic lands, I mean, that, that you know of? I would say it's a little bit of both. So historically, Islam has always had a very antagonistic relationship with Christianity since the very beginning. I mean, you can find that in the Quran itself. Um, and certainly the expansion of Islam 
um, across the Mediterranean world in the seventh and eighth centuries was a violent and oppressive expansion. Um, now, <clears throat> I think that probably a lot of listeners may not know this because often we think about the Middle East as the Muslim world, but there was a time when the Muslim world was actually the Christian world. And in the course of about a hundred years between when um, the Prophet Muhammad allegedly first received uh, these um, uh, you know, orations uh, mediated through an angel from Allah that ended up becoming the Quran uh, in the 630s, you know, within about 100 years from there, about two-thirds of Christians in the entire world were under um, Islamic political authority. It happened very quickly, right? So huge historic Christian communities in places like Egypt, North, uh, elsewhere in North Africa, Syria, Asia Minor. I mean, these are you know, Christian communities that could trace their lineage back to the early centuries uh, of, the, of the church. Um, became, you know, more or less under control of, um, you know, Muslim authorities. And those Muslim authorities, though, you know, it was rare for them to, you know, to put people, uh, you know, put swords to people's necks and demand that they convert. They certainly made it a lot more difficult for Christians to practice their faith. There were usually laws in place that made it difficult to establish or um, even do prepares on their churches. There were taxes that were levied against Christians. So there were a lot of incentives for people to convert to Islam. Um, so that's the reason why, you know, when we think about the Muslim world today, yeah, we think it's, yeah, majority Muslim. But um, I've read some historical scholars that say, you know, even into like the eight or nine hundreds, there was still a pretty significant percentage of what we think of as the Muslim world that was still Christian. Um, and, you know, of course, there's plenty of examples of pretty severe persecution of Christians um, in history. In Spain, the, uh, the Almohads were, were very aggressive in their treatment of Christians, and there were a lot of martyrs, um, like in the 7th and 8th centuries. There's a fantastic uh, book on that that was done a couple of years ago. Um, oh, I forget the name of it off the top of my head. Um, but uh, anyway, so yes, there, there's, there's plenty of historical examples of persecution of Christians, but there's all yes, there also is some there are some recent historical developments that explain why things have gotten a little bit more acute for Christians in places like Pakistan, the rise of Islamic extremism and fundamentalism. Um, it's starting in the 70s and 80s. So like the, the very short version of the history would be um, in the colonial period, a lot of Muslims came to view Arab nationalism as the way to fight back against European colonization, right? This idea that their Arab national identity, like language, culture, all the rest of that was the most important thing about what it meant to be an Arab. And, uh, and that's like the Ba'athist parties, if you're familiar with those, like in Syria and Iraq, right? Those are secular parties, right? Saddam Hussein was a, uh, you know, a blue-blooded secularist. Um, he, was, he was not an Islamic extremist. Um, but beginning in the, in the 70s, Islamic fundamentalists started to fight back against that, um, particularly in places like Egypt, um, but also in Saudi Arabia with the Wahhabi school. And then a lot, the Saudis exported a lot of that to places like Pakistan and certainly in the Southeast Asia, Indonesia. Um, where, you know about the writings of Said Qutb? You know about Said Qutb? A little He's bit. one of those Egyptian guys. That, yeah, I, I tell people, if you don't know who Said Qutb is, that guy changed your life more than Henry Ford and uh, who more, more than Henry Ford and trad men put together. So. Yeah. So it's, it's <laughs> Islamism, right? The Islamist right, school right. The idea that, no, it's not your Arab identity. That's most important. It's your Islamic identity. And the reason why mm -hmm. we as Arabs are suffering so much in the 20, in the you know 20th century. And the reason why the Europeans and the Christians have eclipsed us um, has to do with our, our abandonment of a purest forms of Islam, right? So we, that there was a sense that Ar uh, Arabs and Muslims all over the, you know, the Muslim world needed to return to these more pure and fundamental forms of Islam. Um, and so, yeah, like I said, a lot of that gets exported. Some of that, the United States, unfortunately, was a bit complicit in, like uh, the, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Pakistan is a good example of that in the 80s when we were, I would argue justly fighting back against the Soviets in, the, in Afghanistan, 
we made an alliance with the Pakistanis and the Saudis in order to uh, defeat the Soviets. A unfortunate byproduct of that was we basically helped the Saudis to push their Wahhabi extremist Wahhabi form of Islam all over madrasas, these schools in Pakistan, where now you know a very large percentage of Pakistani Muslims subscribe to these much more extreme forms of Islam that view Christianity as more or less a stain upon their nation, right? And that's where we get a lot of the stories that I describe in The Persecuted is these um, extremist educated Pakistanis who believe that any problems that they are suffering, poverty, political persecution, whatever, the Christians are the ones who are to blame. And the Christians are the ones who need to be punished because of that. Um, so unfortunately, U.S. foreign policy, and you know, we, we don't even need to get into a debate about you know, the invasion of Iraq or Afghanistan, all the rest of that. I mean, regardless of where you come down on whether you think that those invasions were justified and our role in those conflicts was a good thing and, and, and you know, satisfies the criteria of just war theory, put that aside, just the fact that we did, we, that we were in a lot of these Muslim lands provided justification for uh, Muslim extremists in places like Iraq, Syria, Pakistan to antagonize and violently persecute Christian minority communities. Yeah, you know, I agree. I agree with you there. That's I think sometimes we tend to not think about that, whether good or bad, our our intervention in the West contributes to this extremism and think, you know, the way they think sometimes. And and going along with what you said, going back to the 70s and what I listened to recently, a podcast, uh, Martyr Made, where I can't remember the name of the episode, but he talks about basically the founding of the state of Israel going all the way back to the 1880s or so. But anyway, yeah, he brings up the same point you do that because of, you know, the Balfour Declaration, um, the 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 deception that England had had promised, uh, you know, uh, the you know, for an Arab kingdom, so on and so forth, that, that they kept getting um that the people in the Middle East, the Arabs, they kept getting pushed aside that eventually they gave up their identification as Arabs and they started saying, we need to identify as, as, as you were saying, as Muslims more than we do, you know, as Arabs to bring people together. It was a way to, you know, uh, bring the groups together. One note that I did find really interesting in your book that I didn't ever really consider was towards the end, one of the later chapters, you said, why do the Muslims take such offense to any type of criticism of the Quran or the prophet uh, Muhammad himself. And you had mentioned that you think it was basically a passing down of the mockery and um, humility that Muhammad felt when he first started um, spreading the Islamic religion you could, uh, because, you know, he was mocked in his home city by the pagans and he was constantly fighting and that, that feeling of not allowing any mockery or, or humiliation um, kind of basically got passed down through the years. Did, did I state that correctly? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely not my original thinking there. I'm indebted very much to a great uh, scholar of Islam, David Penalt, a devout Catholic. He's retired now. He just recently retired um, from one of the, um, I forget which college in California. Um, but yeah, that's more or less what he argues in a book that was published several years ago called um, The... What is it? Um, the the crucifix. I have it available. I don't. I forget the name of it. But um, I the, might have it. Yeah. The oh gosh, the crucifix on Mecca's porch or something like that. But anyway, that's yeah. That's more or less what David Penalt argues is this idea that uh, humiliation is a is a big theme is in Islamic thought in practice. Certainly, you're right that Muhammad. Um, was deeply humiliated and then sought to turn the tables on those who had humiliated him, these pagan um, Arab trader cities um, in what's now Saudi Arabia. Um, and I think that Muhammad and the, the Muslim clerics and thinkers that followed him, they viewed the Christian story as one of humiliation, right? This idea that God would actually take on human flesh, dirty, disgusting human flesh, um, that, that seems so below God. And then this idea that he would die this ignoble death upon a cross. Um, and so this, there, there is this sense within the Muslim tradition that Christianity is very much like an embarrassing thing. It's, it's, a, it's a religion of, um, of humiliation. 
Um, and so, uh, yeah. And so I think in some senses that kind of gives ground to religious extremists to then, you know, humiliate and mistreat Christians. Yeah. And in the book, you, you listed it here in your chapter. It's uh, the crucifix on Mecca, Mecca's front porch, a Christian's companion for the study of Islam. That's it. Yeah. And and have you ever read the book um, Dominion by Tom Holland? Have you had a chance to read that? I've read some of the reviews of that book. He's a he's a Brit, if I remember. Right. right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he's not Catholic or anything, but it's a it's a great book. I really enjoyed it. But speaking of the humiliation, like that that the way Muslims view Christianity isn't any different than the way that the ancient world viewed crucifixion, right? Because it was such a dishonorable and disgusting way for people to die that the ancients didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to witness one. They didn't want to be anywhere around it because it was so so taboo and so dishonorable, and um. You know, so so when you read Paul says that the cross, you know, is foolish is foolishness to the to the Greeks or every words, but the or foolishness. Let me start over. <laughs> that the cross is foolishness to the world. It really brings on a different meaning because we see crucifixes and crosses everywhere, and we think, oh, this is a symbol of power, and it is. Don't get me wrong, but to the ancients and and going along with your theme with the way the Muslims view it, it's not. It's a it's a viewpoint of it's a symbol of humiliation, of weakness, of something that God would never be. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The um, I think it's worth noting there was something I took a class once in Islam when I was in college, just so I would know more about something before I talked about it. And I thought there was a very interesting way that the that the Muslims theologically break the world down when they talk about the Islamic world. They, when they talk about the Islamic world, they use this phrase Dar al-Islam, um, which means house of peace, which means all the countries that live under the Sharia. Okay? All the other countries that don't live under the Sharia live under the Dar al-Arb, which means house of war. This is theologically how the world breaks down in the Islamic religion. That's that's stuck in my mind, and I've never forgotten that. Does that mean what I think it means, Casey? I don't know. I know you're not an Islamic theologian, and I don't expect you to be, but I know you have probably done a little bit more research on this than I have. And um, I have to tell you, with the amount of persecution that goes on in, in the Islamic world, I must believe that there is something in the religion itself that that lends itself to that i mean i think that's what i think that's what you've been saying and i mean a fair assessment yeah sir, i think the way that i have articulated it in a lot of articles that i've written both before and after i wrote the persecuted is i think to say that islam at its core is a violent religion that that's a that's a very difficult claim to make and that, that i agree that would be you know, there's a lot of Muslims who practice their faith peacefully. There are schools of Islam that are peaceful and have no intention of aggressively or violently promoting and expanding their religion. But that said, I think what we can say very clearly from the historical testimony and, and also from the Quran itself, even just kind of, uh, you know, general streams of interpretation that are accepted by all Muslims is that um, Islam does have this aggressive streak to it that um, has sought to expand its power and justify it, its, uh, its expansion through you know, military force and political coercion if necessary. Um, and, that, and that's always been a part of the Islamic tradition. Whether or not you know, that's been something that all Muslim scholars and practitioners of the faith have always subscribed to, not, no, not necessarily, but I think any Muslim looking clear-eyed at their own religious tradition and their own history has to acknowledge the fact that um, their entire history of their faith is one um, defined by violence mm. uh, and certainly aggression towards Christianity in particular. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and like, you know, like, like David Penalt argues a certain antipathy towards the cross and other core Christian teachings. That's you know, fascinating. That, yeah. That is fascinating. I've never, th I've never thought about it from that perspective, but that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, 
there are individual stories of heroism in here that I really want you guys to read instead of just listen to us talk about. But um, there was something in here that really surprised me. I'm often dismayed at, shall we say, the, the lack of church prominent churchmen who speak speak out on this issue. Um, and then I get to thinking after as I'm reading this book and I'm like, you know, if you're the Pope of the Catholic Church and you speak out on this issue, there is, is, is there a real possibility you could make things infinitely worse for the Catholics and the Christians who live in these places? And is that something that you have to think about? And do you think that that plays yeah. into the, the calculation of why we don't hear a lot about this? I, yes, probably. I think that probably is true. I can't read the mind of Pope Francis. Sure. But certainly you can look at the example of Pope Benedict XVI, the, his inf famous or infamous, depending on how you look at it, Regensburg Address, where he quoted a Byzantine um, emperor mm -hmm. from the Middle Ages. And the Byzantine emperor, I forget the exact way he worded it, but he said something to the along, along the lines of the Prophet Muhammad and, and the religion of Islam is, has always been a religion of, of violence and intolerance. And Benedict was actually just quoting him. He wasn't necessarily quoting him um, as an endorsement saying, oh, yes, I agree with this Byzantine emperor. But he was more saying just, you know, quoting him. And then he went on to make another point. And then uh, <laughs> people across the Islamic world took great offense to this. But the, the irony is that they took great offense and, and demonstrated their offense by committing acts of violence against Christians. Yes, I remember that. That was <laughs> so. So they, uh, yeah, they kind of proved they kind of proved the point a little bit, unfortunately. But yeah, I think that is true that um, a lot of Christian leaders are careful with what they say because they know they can cause. But in the midst of that, right? So there's there that means that all of the real aid that goes on happens in the background. And you don't see a lot of it. And you do talk a little bit about that in the book. Tell us a little bit about some of the things that are that go on in the background that, I mean, to the extent that you can, and obviously you have confidences as a, as a journalist that I would never ask you to betray on our show, nor would you. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about that, that sort of, I hesitate to call it an underground railroad uh, to some extent? <laughs> there, I think there. Yeah, that, that's actually not not a terrible analogy to make. There are a lot of people who are involved in supporting persecuted Christians uh, all over the world, certainly in the Muslim world, um, and that are, are providing all different kinds of aid. Um, certainly, aid like you know, food, clothing, just money, but also legal assistance. Um, so we 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 encountered a lot of those types of individuals and organizations while we were living in Bangkok. So you mentioned it briefly, but I'll just kind of give a little bit of brief background on the two families in particular that we met, the Wilsons and the D'Souza. And, and feel free to talk as much about them as you want. Yeah, I just didn't want to. Yeah, no problem. So uh, both Pakistani Catholic families um, and large extended families uh, have been in Pakistan for a long time. They're, I don't know the long history of how their, their families came to be Catholic in the first place. The D'Souza's, um, interestingly enough, Michael and his wife, wife Rosemary, are both only half South Asian. Um, Michael is half Portuguese, and his wife Rosemary is half German. Um, but they both both families suffered increased amounts of persecution. A lot of that had to do with the increase of Taliban affiliated extremists in their home city of Karachi in Pakistan, Karachi. I mean, it's not a city that necessarily gets a lot of play in the West, but it's like twice the size as New York City. It's huge. It's a massive um, city, very impoverished city in, in uh, southern Pakistan, but with a large Christian population. But when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan uh, after 9-11, a lot of these Taliban who were in Afghanistan, they fled into Pakistan. And some of them ended up in Karachi. And uh, and that's that explains a lot of the reason why um, – a lot of these Christians started to really feel the heat um, in Pakistan as these Taliban militants who had previously been hanging out um, in Afghanistan in the late 90s, early 2000s were pushed out. So they, they flee to Bangkok um, and immediately both families were able to lash up with a very large Catholic parish that's in downtown 
um, in downtown Bangkok, uh, a redemptorist parish that had a huge ministry dedicated to providing for persecuted Christians. Certainly lots of Pakistanis, but like I said, there are a good number of Christians from elsewhere in the Muslim world, uh, Middle East and South Asia and whatnot. So even the parish itself is doing a lot of the work that you're describing. Like there was a, a priest there. He's, he's now dead. God rest his soul, who was from Kansas. He had been in Thailand since like the 50s. Um, and he ran a ministry devoted to providing, you know, food and, you know, baby formula and all kinds of other stuff and, and employing a lot of these Pakistanis at the church, like doing a traffic control and, you know, uh, putting out chairs and busting them down at the end of Sunday and all kinds of other stuff. So that, that kind of stuff exists. Um, legal organizations, certainly. But some of the stuff I thought was the most interesting about my experience in Bangkok was you mentioned the D'Souza family. Uh, Michael and his wife, Rosemary, and their three children, they were detained twice by the Thais. They overstayed their visas. And this is a way that the Thai authorities are able to make a lot of money by um, detaining these folks that overstay their visas. Um, and then they basically need somebody to pay to get them out of there. And it costs quite a bit of money. It's about, at least at the time, it was almost $1,500 per person. Mm. Um, so while they were in the detention center, there was this group of people um, that basically organized to go and visit everybody in the detention center every week and basically like do a query of, okay, what kinds of things do you need? Do you have the food you need? Do you have clothing? Do you have shampoo for the men? Do you have razors? Like, you know, anything you can think of trying to figure out what they needed and then basically trying to provide that uh, to them. And it was a remarkable demonstration of ecumenism. Plenty of Catholics were involved in that effort, but also a lot of evangelicals, but Ironically enough, the thing was run by Mormons, which was very surprising um, to me. Um, and uh, and they, you know, and they would pray and whatnot. And you know, obviously, ecumenism is a lot harder with Mormons than it is with evangelicals, since they don't even recognize the Trinity. Um, right. But but all the same, um, it it was a uh, it was pretty amazing and, and heartening to see all of us in the name of Christ um, trying to to take care of these people who had been so unjustly treated first in their home country and now by the Thai authorities. And, you know, I've, I've done, um, I've been involved with the prison ministry uh, here in, here in Texas uh, several times. And it's like three day retreats that we do twice a year or whatever, spend, spend all day with the prisoners. But <clears throat> I mean, what, when I read this book and I read what these groups are doing um, for these prisoners in Thailand, man, it was just amazing you know what, what I what I've done pales a comparison to what they're doing because, I mean the the feeling that I got is they gave their heart soul heart and soul to these people just trying to you know get letters out get them food get them whatever they needed help their families that maybe weren't in the detention center it was just it was really an amazing sacrifice these people were making and they were really living the message where Jesus says visit those in prison they that they are living that message like you said week to week. Yeah, it's uh, in uh, we were very blessed to be able to participate in that ministry, and I talk about it in the book a lot. This idea that um, you know, it, a lot of people will say, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe you did so much for these people. I can't believe you sacrificed so much of your time." It's like the the more that you get involved in in that kind of ministry, the more you realize that we're actually the ones being blessed by getting an opportunity yep. to serve yeah. them, and. Uh, you know, and that my sacrifice is really, you know, because at the end of the day, I would go and visit the D'Souza's or whoever else was in the detention center. I'd go, for, you know, I give up a morning, you know, once every couple of weeks. My wife went every week because she had a little bit more flexibility in her schedule. Um, and I then I go back to my apartment in downtown Bangkok, which was fully furnished and, you know, running water. And um, I can go out to eat whenever I want. You know, I have all this freedom. Um, so yeah, the sacrifices that, that they made were just so much more emblematic of what Christ has called us to, you know, the, the fact that they, this, that really has struck with me. I think the, the further I get removed from being, cause it's been six years since we lived in Thailand now. Um, and I think about how easy it would be to just say, you know what, this isn't worth it. It's not worth it to put my family through all of this. You know, it'd just be easier to just say, you know what, fine. We're just going to go back to Pakistan we're going to be Muslim. Most and, of us here in the West abandon Christianity for a heck of a lot less. Right. <laughs> right. Did, when you were, it may, I hope this isn't too personal, but when you were visiting um, the guys in the detention center and were working 
um, with these two families. Did you, you know, you mentioned just now and in the book, how you would go back, like you said, to your apartment, fully furnished, running water, didn't have all the struggles that, that they had. Did you ever get the feeling though, when you would come back, you were, you were thinking, man, I see more joy in these people than I find in myself. Did, did you ever have that feeling? And did, did it, did it cause a self-examination? Oh yeah. I mean, yes, constantly. I mean, cause that is, that is the, the fact of the matter is that, that these, the persecuted Christians that, that we developed close friendships with were more joyful people, more prayerful people than, uh, than, than I probably will ever be. Um, in some respects, that's a, that's a fact of that. I mean, that's their life, you know, I mean, that's all they can do. Will Wilson, the other family, uh, the leader of the other family, Wilson William, um, extended family of what there were like 17 of them. Uh, once one of his, uh, one of his nephews had a kid. Um, I mean, all they did all day was just go to mass and pray and do whatever little work was given to them by the parish because they could, they, they had no work visas, you know, they had no other options. Um, so their life revolved around prayer and trusting in God. And, uh, and to this day, you know, for every major holiday, I still get WhatsApp messages from the Pakistani families that we supported, you know, wishing us a happy, you know, whatever the feast day is because, uh, yeah, because the faith is much more near and dear to them because it's everything they don't, you know, if I, if I abandon my faith here in Northern Virginia, um, yeah, you know, it would affect some relationships and, um, I don't know. I, I would lose a, a small source of my income because I wouldn't, you know, be writing religious articles. But I would get on with my life, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, and you know, and I mean, I would say I'd be I would be an unhappier person in the long run, and certainly my soul would be endangered. But um, with yeah, they <laughs> their their sacrifices and their suffering. I mean, it's just uh, yeah, it just is so much more than anything I, I would ever experience. Yeah, just I don't I don't have much much to lose. Whereas they, yeah, they have everything to lose. And, they and in some cases have, have, um, yeah. the, the, the book primarily focuses on the, the, the situation in Pakistan, although it does cover that this is a problem in a lot of different countries. I remember even hearing that there is a Roman Catholic parish in Mogadishu, Somalia, that services like 17 people. And I thought, what must it be like to be a one of those 17 Catholics in a Muslim country that doesn't even have the facade of law and order? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, so talk to us about some of the some of the countries where this stuff is is the worst. And some countries, I mean, because I, I, there have to be countries where this this persecution is less, but it's still obviously, uh, you know, bad. But where where do we find the worst examples of, of what we talk about here? Certainly Pakistan is one of the worst. You hinted at it before, the blasphemy laws, um, which have gotten aggressively more antagonistic towards Christians since the in the, in the 80s and 90s. Um, where basically anything that a Christian could say that could be interpreted as blasphemy could be grounds for a charge, imprisonment, and even capital punishment. The most famous example of that being Azia Bibi. She was a poor uh, female park Pakistani farmhand. She, uh, you know, there was one day she was out working with some Muslims, uh, you know, just impoverished, just like her. But you know they want they wanted to be a little bit higher up on the rung than her, right? Because they're Muslim and she's Christian, and so they took offense at the fact that she was drinking from the same water cup as them. And uh, I think she made some kind of comment to defend herself, um, and uh, you know stood up for herself. Well, that's one thing you definitely do not want to do if you are a Christian in Pakistan is try to stand up for yourself because Muslims will use that as an opportunity to you know to to really grind you into the dust. And that's what they—that's what they more or less did to Asia Bibi. You know, there was a riot. Um, she was she was imprisoned. She was charged with blasphemy. She was convicted. She was put on death row. The only reason that she got out was because her story attracted so much international attention. Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, uh, the Pontiff at the time, made some statements that during one of his audiences in Rome. Some major heads of state, um, including um, the Premier of Canada at the time—I forget who it was—you know—he commented on it. Um, so they were eventually able to get her out of there, but 
Um, there have been plenty of other, other examples in Pakistan of people who have, you know, allegedly made blasphemous remarks and then been um, killed, you know, ex these extrajudicial killings that happen all the time. And certainly that, you know, that, that was the threat to Wilson's family and Michael's family in Pakistan. I, I talk about it in the book. You know, Michael was multiple times almost beaten to death yeah. um, by Muslim extremists. He had relatives, female relatives who were abducted and forced to marry Muslim men, never heard from them again. So these things are happening frequently in Pakistan. They don't attract headlines because who's going to report on it, right? Um, anybody who reports on these kinds of things risks having the same sort of attention um, uh, from Muslim extremists. But apart from Pakistan, Nigeria is an example. Yeah, I know Nigeria has gotten, and that was the, 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 the small bit, uh, sojourn I had in immigration law was an issue uh, in Nigeria. And one of the things that you have to prove up in order to prove refugee status is that you've gone to the authorities and they've refused to help you. Well, here's the problem. The authorities all work for Boko Haram. And it's no. like, you know, you can't go to the authorities because they're going to tell Boko Haram where you live. You know, I mean, it is so, yeah, Nigeria has gotten real bad. Well, especially and, there in the like the where the that northern southern border conflict is yeah. going on. Well, and Casey mentioned you mentioned in your book as well about when when uh, these refugees in Thailand when they would go to tell their refugee status the story about what happened. A lot of times the translators didn't translate correctly and really still had the same mentality in Pakistan. They really weren't interested in helping tell the truth about these Christian stories. So they were being denied many times based on falsities. Yeah, that happens unfortunately quite a bit. Many of the interpreters that are employed by the UNHCR are Muslims. And so they don't really have any real sympathy for these Christians. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have every reason to trust people like Wilson and Michael and their extended family um, because they, they had such great humility and strength of character and integrity um, and the stories they told of, you know, more or less like going saying to the, cause these guys speak English. I mean, I don't, I don't speak Urdu. I know a handful of words, um, but you know, they telling me these stories about how they would, they would be forced to give these interviews in Urdu. Um, and, uh, and then the Urdu interpreter turning to the UN official and speaking in English and then them saying, well, wait a minute, that's not what I said. Right. But it's like, no, 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 no. You just have to let the interpreter do their thing. Um, so unfortunately, there, yes, there is a lot of corruption in that regard, which is heartbreaking. Um, but I think also people in the West, certainly those who um, serve in a lot of these elite inst international institutions um, and are educated in you know, the, the elite academic institutions of the United States, they are not really exposed to the realities of Christian persecution around the world. They, they have a very, um, um, their perspective on where the real, you know, the suffering lies around the world is very tainted by liberal leftist ideology, right? So for example, I mean, you see this with Department of State, right? Department, I think if, if you were to ask most people in a Department of State, like what is the most persecuted minority around the world? Most of them are going to say sexual minorities. Yeah, transgenders. <laughs> right? I'm not, not going to say Christians. Um, and I think it's, it's demonstrated in the fact that, you know, embassies take great pride in like throwing up the pride flag in June. Um, that's much more important to them than trying to advocate for um, religious minorities to include Christians around the well, world. They don't they don't fly the pride flag everywhere in June. I mean, they may fly it out in, in Rome, but they don't. Well, they, they don't they, fly it in Tehran or they, you know, they have flown it in, I think, a couple of the Middle Eastern countries this past year. They don't fly it uh, in Riyadh. I know that. I'll say this, that like I kind of have a theory and I don't mean to get off topic here, but I kind of have a theory that, you know, you read about the real life problems of of, uh, you know, just people in general around the world. And then in the West, we have such an abundance that we don't have, for the most part, life and death problems. Right. Like like we read about in this book. So we essentially have to I guess it's in our human nature to have some problem to tackle that that, that we've become so relaxed and so problem free that we have to make up problems right and you see a lot of that with 
the the transgender movement, the pronoun movement, you know, all these all these different movements we're talking about. It's people <laughs> I think are just in such comfort that they're looking for a problem to solve when there really isn't one. Because again, you read about the persecution, just say of these Christians. I kind of do that. Or, or persecution of just people in general. I mean, you'll see that they're not concerned with all that mess because it Dude, really Francis, it really isn't a real issue. When Pope Francis wrote Traditionis Custodes, I was convinced that he did that to me and he did it to me on purpose. And, you know, I was persecuted. I'm oppressed. How could he do this to me? You know, putting reading things like this, and then you book, read this, and you're like, nope. <laughs> you're like, okay, maybe maybe I'll shut up about this for a little bit and talk about some people who maybe have it a little bit worse, <laughs> <laughs> which is a good thing to do. You got to humble yourself every once in a while. Um, I want to ask an important question. I would be remiss if we if we finished our time here without asking, how can we help? Are there places? Catholics can go websites we can visit causes we can contribute to or things organizations like that can be doing that they're not doing um, to aid persecuted Christians. I think number one on the list, the one I've said in all the interviews when folks have asked that question, which is prayer. If we really believe that God is acting in the world and that God is uh, a loving and, and gracious God who answers our prayers, then I, we have to start there. Certainly because I, I think it, the example of Wilson and Michael's families shows that prayer works, right? I mean, when I left Thailand in 2014, man, I was discouraged. Um, and I had, I, I confess, I didn't have a lot of hope that things were going to get better for either of them. Right. And then fast forward, I mean, what a year, year and a half. And some of Wilson's family, had emigrated successfully to the Netherlands. And he credits that to prayer. I credit to prayer as well. Um, so we can never underestimate the, the power of offering these things up to Christ, but also because it helps align our hearts with the, you know, the heart of Christ himself, right? Mm -hmm. This is something that's very near and dear to Christ and his sacred heart. So we need to make it near and dear to our heart as well. This is something when I, I, I try to pray the rosary every day, and once a week, I offer my rosary for the persecuted church. So I'd encourage, you know, listeners and viewers to, to do that. Start there. Um, and I, I think that would be a fantastic gift, um, both to themselves, but also to the persecuted church. Apart from that, yeah, there's plenty of organizations. The Knights of Columbus actually has a very active arm dedicated to helping the persecuted church, uh, particularly in the Muslim world. So I, I would definitely recommend them um, and, and sending them your financial support. But uh, yeah, there's lots of, I mean, if you just, if you look at the book, in the book, I have a, um, uh, an appendix that explains, uh, you know, a number of the Catholic and even non-Catholic organizations that folks can, um, you know, if they want to donate and try to help some of these persecuted Christians, um, that they can do so. So um, yeah, I just kind of encourage those to kind of check out um, what's recommended in the book. But yeah, I think the Knights of Columbus is a fantastic place to start. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think... You know, when, when we talk about uh, praying for, for, for things, and I, I always like to sort of give this caveat that um, praying for somebody and telling them you'll pray for them are not the same thing. So you say, so, oh, yeah, I'm going to pray for you. Oh, yeah, I'll keep you guys in my prayers. Like, you actually have to do that. You owe, you have somebody, you owe somebody a debt. I had a Franciscan tell me that one time. So he said, do you ever tell somebody, okay, I'll keep you in my prayers. Stop right there and pray Hail Mary. Because if you forget, you owe a debt to somebody. And so that's important. So be, please do pray for these Christians. Um, we're going to include a link to the book in our description, as well as I'm going to find the Knights of Columbus link that deals uh, specifically with this particular arm of the organization. And I'll include a link for that as well. Um, parting thoughts, Jace. Yeah, I just wanted to, if you'll bear with me, I just wanted to read this small paragraph from the book mm -hmm. that, that I thought was really good. Um, Casey writes, Our Lord has offered us, weak, frail, selfish, and easily distracted, an opportunity to participate in his redemptive work on earth. Thus, every prayerful effort we made on behalf of Michael and his family 
worked in small, imperceptible ways to build and bless Christ's body. So we labored on, praying that someday we would have a far greater story to tell. And thank you for the book, Casey. It was it was really a wonderful book, and I encourage everybody um, to read it. And like you said, at least at a minimum, pray for these people often. Yeah, and it's again, the book is not... I was a little trepid going into this because uh, I, I don't like, you know, like, like there were, I, I tried to read a book about Rwanda once and I like put that down. I'm like, nah, that's a little too much for me. I don't really. And I was like, if it's, if it's too much of that, I'm not going to be able to get through this, but it wasn't there. You know, the, the horror stories are in there, but the stories of hope are, are really what the book is about. I encourage everybody to buy this book, dig in. A link will be in the description. Um, Case, and I, I just, just want to, yeah. No, no, I, I just wanted to add, you know, I, I know we're, we've talked about the uh, Christian persecution in Muslim lands. Um, I, I did kind of want to mention on, on a positive note, you know, obviously we're not saying, and Casey mentioned it kind of uh, in the middle of the episode that, you know, obviously not all Muslims are like this. Some are, you know, not, not all are, as extreme as the others. Cause you know, when I was in Saudi Arabia, when I would go to mass, um, I had, uh, he's actually a really good friend of mine. I've had when he's been to the U S he's been over to the house for dinner, but he's an Egyptian Muslim. He would actually drive me to mass every Sunday in Bahrain, sit in the, sit in the truck and wait for me to get out of mass. And then would take me. So you do have, you know, your good faith. I think Muslims out there who, who, if you know, that we can have these conver conversations with and hopefully through the grace of God convert, convert more of them over. But, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to end on this note that, that all Muslims are bad. Obviously they're not, but I, I just wanted people to know that, you know, I have good relationship with Muslims and, and you, and, you know, other people should. Oh, too. Every, so, every Muslim yeah. I've ever met has been a great person, been a great yeah. guy. I mean, personally speaking, uh, and when we, but had, it doesn't, but it doesn't take from the reality that there is right. massive Muslim persecution persecution of Christians by Muslim in the Muslim world. Well, I used to put it like this. Do you remember when the, when the, the, the Trump travel ban hit? Okay. And, and, and all these lawyers and everything, uh, were piling into the airports and there were demonstrations. There was national news story, right? I mean, there were airports that were ground to a halt because of protesting and all that. Okay. If you wanted to go to, let's say, visit the city of Mecca or Medina, you would not be allowed to do so because Muslims are not allowed to enter those cities. Non-Muslims. If you, I'm sorry. Yeah. Non-Muslims. You're correct. Only Muslims are allowed to enter those cities. If you tried to sneak in and they caught you and they will catch you. How many lawyers do you think are going to crowd into the embassy in Riyadh? How, how many national news media, how many protesters do you think are going to clog the airports for you? And my question has always been, so who has the phobia here? Exactly. I'm just, I, it, this is a legitimate question. Who has the phobia exactly? I don't know. Um, that, that's going to be my, my close. Um, and there we go. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Casey. I uh, really appreciated you coming on the show. Any, any, any last words, Case? My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I'll just note, you know, thank you. I really appreciate you guys reading the book and advocating, you know, for it. It, it was published about a year and a half ago. Um, so I, I definitely still trying to generate, you know, interest in the story of the persecuted church. And like you said, Mark, you know, my goal with this was to try and present a story about how um, someone, you know, someone or some ones, my, my wife and I, not we didn't move to Thailand with the intention of helping persecuted Christians. I didn't even know this was an issue when we went there, right? But we, when we got there, we identified this is a huge problem. And the reason we got involved, ultimately, I mean, I had some experience. I had served in Afghanistan, and so I had you know, some affinity for South Asians already, and I was eager to kind of talk to them and, and share their culture. But they were my friends. They were people I knew from, from church, from our parish. 
and I just wanted to get to know them and understand them. And once I heard their stories, it was like, oh my gosh, this is, you, they're heroes. They're, they they yeah. were, uh, you know, they really are. They're, uh, they, they're, they're living heroic lives of faith. And I wanted to share that and share and, and hopefully inspire readers to, to look at their own lives and see where maybe there are heroes around them that, uh, you know, that are in need of some help and support and encouragement and, and to reach out and, and do the same kind of thing. Um, cause like I said, you know, ultimately it was them that blessed my wife, Claire and I, right. I mean, I, I they, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they, they've expressed their appreciation many times for what we did for them, but, um, it, it was ultimately a friendship. And when you have a friendship with people, even when, you know, it, there can sometimes be like a, a sense that, you know, you're someone's in the more powerful position and someone's in the more vulnerable and weak and needy position, right? If you're operating out of a sense of true charity and friendship, then yeah, of course you go to bat for the, you go to bat for your friends. Right. And, uh, and so I, I kind of hope that readers come away with, with inspired to look for those opportunities in their own lives. And I think they, I think they will. I certainly did. Um, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I want to thank Casey again for taking some time and uh, doing the show with us. This was a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. The book is The Persecuted, True Stories of Courageous Christians Living Their Faith in Muslim Lands. The author is Casey Chalk. Thank you guys so much again, and thank you, Casey. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. And remember, everybody, life is hard, but it's harder when you don't pray the rosary. God bless. God bless. God bless.